0: This week on the show we describe the YubiKey agent uh, on FreeBSD, managing Kubernetes clusters from OpenBSD, the history of FreeBSD part one, running a Jitsi meet in a FreeBSD jail is helpful to you probably, we have a command line bug hunting session in FreeBSD for you, the game of GitHub, WireGuard officially merged into OpenBSD's kernel, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 358 OpenBSD Kubernetes clusters recorded on the 8th of July 2020. This episode is brought to you by TarSnap, the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hi, my name is Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to a fresh new episode in this week. Hopefully, you had a nice week so far, but it won't be complete with a fresh episode. Of BSD Now, and this is what we have for you today. The headlines have a YubiKey agent on FreeBSD, which sounds uh, very nice for the people who have the little crypto device in hardware available. And now you can use it um, on FreeBSD with the agent. So the uh, Author here writes that some time ago, Filippo Valsorda, I think, wrote YubiKey Agent, seamless SSH agent for YubiKeys. I really like YubiKeys and worked on the FreeBSD support for U2F and Chromium and PyU2F, getting YubiKey Agent ported looking like an interesting project. It took some hacking to make it work, but overall it wasn't hard. Following is the roadmap on how to get it set up on FreeBSD. The actual details depend on your system, as you will see. So the first step is to set up the middleware for accessing smart cards, which the YubiKey implements in CCID smart card protocol. Uh, The PCSE Lite packages provide the daemon and library for clients to communicate with the daemon. And CCID is a plugin for PCSE Lite that implements the actual CCID protocol over USB. So DevD rules are to make the daemon rescan the USB devices on hot plug.
1: So it looks like all you do is package install CCID and PCSC Lite uh, so you have the software for it and then create a user local etc devd directory and put some rules in it that basically say hey if there's a uh, new USB device plugged in run the PCSCD and basically say hey rescan all the um, USB devices and see if there's a new smart card. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and then restarting devd to pick up that configuration and then enabling the PC uh, smartcard daemon uh, and getting that running. And so that it'll be
0: good to go. Oh, yeah. So then you get uh, the, the go binaries. So to get those, that's kind of important to have a, a go or a go and git development.
1: Well, in in particular, they're saying. Uh, both Go and Git are build requirements for the app. So if you're not just installing the package, but want to compile it, then you will need these
0: other dependencies. So to satisfy those, you install them separately so that they can be found with the the configure step. Yeah, something like that in this. So they reference the go.mod. So go install commands, install the app in tilde go slash bin. And when a new version of um, piv-go, is released and yubikey-agent switches to using it all these commands can be replaced with a single go get github slash username uh yubikey dash agent command and they describe how to do that and then once you've built that the binary is in go slash bin as mentioned you can add it to your path to type less which is very nice and handy and then you set up the yubikey uh, it's well documented on the official side. So one caveat here is that the pin length is less than six characters. Uh, then the setup will fail with this somewhat confusing message: the default pin did not work. But if you have a YubiKey, you probably encountered this or know the way around that. And now you can use your YubiKey agent uh, you, with, for example, the pin entry command. Uh, the one for KDE is the pin entry-qt5. Or um, if you want to have it on the command line as well, you can uh, symlink the two. So pin entry-qt5 dash with pin entry. Cool. That's pretty straightforward. So uh, thanks to Gonzo for this blog post and helpful advice on the crypto side.
1: Yeah. So uh, being able to use the YubiKey to protect your SSH key is very handy.
0: Oh, yeah. And it's like very, very nice to see. Yeah, I can plug this thing in and... Uh, log into a machine and then plug it out and no one else can get to that machine without the key. The physical key.
1: Uh, So next we have a post on how to manage Kubernetes clusters from OpenBSD. Ooh. Uh, So this is from e1e0.net and they say that um, some of us uh, have to suffer the pain of the trendy tech and buzzwords even when it does not provide much benefit. But hey... uh, you have to be one of the cool kids playing with the cool tech, right? All anyway, right, so nowadays containers are all the way down, as they say. Um, this solves some problems and brings other problems, but that's not what this article is about. In this article, we'll talk about how um, we can manage the work infrastructure with all its cloudy containers from the comfort of an OpenBSD workstation. So as I said, before I tried all this, I had a Linux VM uh, running in a, a VMD, which is the OpenBSD hypervisor. So I could have all of the command line tools to get the Google Cloud Platform and Google Kubernetes Engine and stuff working. My goal was to have all the tools needed just work on OpenBSD so I don't have to fire up this VM just to hassle with some YAML files and so on. So in this case, I needed a bunch of different uh, CLI tools. Gcloud, which is the Google Cloud SDK for managing Compute Engine VMs, Cloud Storage Buckets, etc. Uh, KubeCTL, which is to manage Kubernetes directly. And they have a note here that early on in June, uh, there's enough KubeCTL has been added to the OpenBSD port tree, So even easier. Then they have uh, Customize, spelled with a K, uh, which allows to have a base configuration for the Kubernetes YAML definitions and then overlay that with just modifications to save you from writing as much YAML. FlexCTL, they use to manage all the YAMLs in a Git repository. Uh, and using Flux as a source of truth. Uh, before this, there was always sync problems uh, and so on. And then finally, Cube seal, which uses sealed secrets to source sensitive data in the repository. Uh, luckily, there's already a port of the Google Cloud SDK and other things like that that are written in Go and can just be compiled on OpenBSD. So in this case, it was just package underscore add Google Cloud SDK and then running gcloud init and doing the configuration. For kubectl, they have the instructions here on how to manually build it, but as of now, there is a port for it, so you'll be able to just package add it as well. For Customize, they just ran go install and get that set up. Uh, FlexCTL currently doesn't have a port yet, but it uses the same technique as they described for CubeCTL, because the go get was failing uh, with a type mismatch on one of the dependencies. And then Cube seal, again, they could just go get, and then they say, finally, we can use all these wonderful commands to manage the fantastic infrastructure from OpenBSD. And there are sarcasm italics around wonderful and fantastic.
0: He <laughs> uh, says, to be
1: honest, at least they do a good job of working with each other uh, and with classic tools, which means they play quite nice with your you know, pipeline redirect composing uh, way of using them. Because I really doubt there's much, there are many OpenBSD users who have to manage Kubernetes clusters, but hopefully this will be useful to someone.
0: Oh yeah, maybe it's a uh, starting ground for more uh, containerization in that area or cloudification of containers, whatever it might mean. Okay, it's time for the news roundup this week. We have an interesting article over from the Clara Systems folks. uh, The history of FreeBSD Part 1, Unix and BSD. Alan, you would know more about this, right? Not exactly, but... (laughs) You don't? You've been doing BSD longer than me. (laughs) Yeah, well, but I thought you had some more uh, insights from the Clara Systems side of things.
1: It's, well, uh, I didn't write the article, if that's what you mean.
0: (laughs) No, I just wondered, uh, are you doing this as a series of multiple uh, history articles?
1: Yes. Uh, There's uh, also a ZFS series of articles as well. Uh, Oh, okay. And a bunch of other stuff, but yes, we're hoping to build out a a nice repository of articles uh, that cover everything from where BSD came from to where BSD is going.
0: Mm. Okay. And you're part of that story. So um, the article begins with, um, well, I guess we have all heard this some way or the other. FreeBSD, free and open source Unix-like operating system has been around since 1993. However, its origins are directly linked to that of BSD and further back, those of Unix. During the history uh, of the FreeBSD series, we will talk about how Unix came to be and how Berkeley's Unix developed at Bell Labs. And before FreeBSD, there was Unix.
1: Yeah, and so basically how, uh, where Unix came from and then how that evolved into Bell Labs and then how that became Research Unix and then eventually got over to Berkeley and how that became the first releases of BSD, and then we had subsequent releases of BSD, and then how we got 386 BSD, and eventually FreeBSD and NetBSD, and, you know, the whole history.
0: Oh yeah, there's a lot of uh, things in there, uh, little details, and most things that have been developed then are now appearing either in a little bit changed form or somewhat similar uh, nowadays, like VI and shell. And so there is your history in the system today still. But, you know, stay
1: tuned to that, uh, the articles page there for, uh, you know, part two of the history. And also, like I said, there's a a ZFS series going on there as well.
0: Okay. Yeah, we will uh, give you notice if there's something new and part two will also uh, be out. Then, next up, for the people who are still plagued at uh, being trapped at home and have no way of communicating with other people, uh, this might come a bit late, but it's nevertheless important, running Jitsi meet in FreeBSD in a jail.
1: Yeah, uh, so this is useful. I know um, some people that were using uh, Jitsi to have uh, meetings for uh martial arts class uh, were having problems with the public instance of Jitsi being too busy and so on. And I was like, well... You know, we could try to set up our own instance if somebody just had the instructions. And look, instructions. Yay, now I have more work to do. (laughs) Now I'm the video administrator. (laughs) But, well, in particular, this will be a lot less work than if I had to do it all myself. So thank you very much uh, to the people here at honeyguide.eu for writing this up. So I say, uh, obviously due to COVID-19, uh, it's led to a lot of people being confined to their homes, uh, for example, here in South Africa, where the blog is coming from, uh, we decided to provide a free and usable uh, Jesse Meet instance to the community that's being hosted in South Africa on our FreeBSD server. That way, communities in South Africa and beyond can have a free alternative to those commercial offerings, and it's local, so it'll be lower latency. So our instance is available uh, at the URL here, and the tutorial will show you how to set up your own uh, from scratch on bsd so what they did to begin was create an IoCage jail and basically saying you know create a new jail called jitsi with uh, an ip address on the igv0 interface and i want freebsd 11.3 you might want that to be 11.4 now but i think that's uh, this article came out just before 11.4 did and that it should auto start at boot then you can console into your jitsi instance bootstrap package or ports and then you can just you know Install Jitsi-meet and Jitsi-video bridge. And then you can use Nginx and acme.sh to set up SSL with trusted certificates. And then they also installed Procity. I don't know what that is for.
0: Yeah, it's uh, probably a component that's needed to make it work the way it should. Mm-hmm. Ah, it's the, uh, according to Freshports, it's the simple extensible XMPP server written in Lua. Ah, so it's the chat part for Jitsi. That makes sense. So getting that set up with the certificates that
1: are required and they have an example configuration here. Then you're setting up the Jitsi video bridge, basically starting the Java daemon, giving it some memory and so on. Uh, And then once you have the video bridge and the XMPP stuff running and configure zip for voice or whatever, then they set up the Jitsi conference stuff, giving the... SSL certificate you created to Java with key tool and getting Jitsi SIP part running. And then they have configure Nginx to front end all of the uh, the web stuff. And a simple configuration for Jitsi Meet itself, uh, basically telling it the XMPP domain, where the bridge is, and so on. And then setting that
0: all in rc.conf. And now when you restart that jail, you'll have a full Jitsi. In the jail. That's the nice thing. Yeah. So they can, they can still feel trapped a little bit, but they don't know that that's just the jail.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, it's just really nice to, uh, when you have to install a bunch of packages and stuff for stuff like this to just know, all right, that's over there. And you know, it, Just because I package upgrade on the host to do this thing, it's not going to necessarily break the packages in the Mm.
0: the container. And if you really want to scale this up, you can put every meeting that you have in a separate jail so that they never know anything from the other ones. But I guess the performance is uh, going to suffer at at certain (laughs) numbers.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, you're probably better off having one Jitsi instance with... Uh, more memory than trying to run a whole bunch with less memory. Okay,
0: but it's nice to wrap this as instructions in case uh, you are still in need of a video conference solution that's uh, free and quick uh, to set up fairly quickly. And um, hopefully it's also bug-free, which brings us to our next item. Uh, Tom Jones has an article in his blog about command-line bug hunting in FreeBSD. Yeah,
1: it says uh, FreeBSD uses Bugzilla to track bugs, to take feature requests, to track regressions and issues. In the operating system and the port tree, the web interface for bugzilla is okay but if you want to do a bunch of batch operations it can be slow to deal with Uh, so we're planning to run a bug squash on july 11th so if you're available on that saturday uh, which i guess will be only a couple days after this episode comes out sorry we didn't uh get you notified ahead of time um but We'll be hanging out kind of like office hours, except for basically the whole afternoon on the Saturday, uh, trying to squash as many bugs as we can. So that's, you know, triaging them, assigning uh, them to people, talking to people, uh, talking about solutions and so on, and trying to get as much of it done as we can. Uh, some of this is a modeled a bit after the um, hackathon we had uh, in Cambridge, or uh, Kitchener, after BSD Can last year. Ah, yeah. But in general, just trying to you know, work through this backlog a little bit. But you know, uh, we figure if we get some tooling and we get some hackers to show up, we can actually get through the giant bug list.
0: Yes. And is it only for developers or can uh, outsiders?
1: Uh, no, uh, anybody can help. Okay, um, you know, uh, some of it is going to be trying to land patches that people who are already helping have posted to Bugzilla and just haven't managed to get attention for, but a lot of the other stuff, Uh, It's like well, somebody has an a feature request that may be pretty small, and somebody could just do it. Yeah, Uh, it's definitely open to everyone. Uh, So if you just want to come and hang out with a bunch of BSD people on a Saturday, do come on. So anyway, he says thankfully there's a Python three command line interface for Bugzilla called PyBugs, which basically installs a binary called Bugs, uh, or a script or anyway, uh, allowing you to search through, update and modify bugs without having to use the web browser. Uh, He ran into a couple of uh, Usability problems with the bug span line tool. I think Mark Linderman mentioned one or two of those are fixed now. Uh so that's helped quite a bit. But you've mostly found it annoying that you couldn't do basic things like search unless you reminded it to skip the authentication step. Hmm. Otherwise, it'd be like, you need to log in. It's like, but I just want to search. I don't need to log in to search. It's like, but we failed to log in, so you can't search. <laughs> but you can tell it to skip off. Or in this case, he eventually configured it to have authentication, because luckily it supports not just having your password on the command line or whatever. Uh, so he's got some examples of how you can say, search for all bugs in the base system that are marked as being for Beehive or how to search for all bugs that relate to UDP or yeah. uh, whatever so else they're
0: looking for. That's definitely a nice way of getting something fixed or uh, also a feature that you always wanted to have, uh, small or big. Uh, into the eyes or hands or in front of the eyes of developers. All right, time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, We have found the game of GitHub as a nice little uh, nod to the uh, recently-ish passed away uh, John Conway. So um, if you drag this URL into your uh, Chrome bookmark or bookmarklet bar, things are happening. The game of life in the GitHub uh, activity bar, I would say, so doesn't have uh, any other purpose than just hey it works <laughs> it's a complete misuse of the actual tool but it's it's possible and so it's a nice clever hack that we thought you should know about and definitely give it a couple uh, tries to see how it evolves over the, over time
1: yeah it's quite amusing <laughs> <laughs>
0: And a little bit more interesting, or well, depends on how you look at it, the WireGuard officially has been merged into OpenBSD, So that's available now. Yep. So
1: uh, David Gwynn committed uh, to the OpenBSD branch the WireGuard interface, which is the kernel driver for the WireGuard VPN communicator, thanks to Matt Dunwoody and Jason... Donnenfeld for their efforts. It's at least as functional as the user space Go implementation, which is what we're using on FreeBSD as well currently, and maybe more so since this one uh, works on more architectures. Uh, I'm sure that there's further development that can be done, but we can say that about anything and everything in the tree, (laughs) which is true. So yeah, uh, built-in support for WireGuard uh, in the kernel on OpenBSD. And I know there's an effort underway to do a WireGuard driver on FreeBSD as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep, that's work in progress. Uh...
1: Definitely, like WireGuard, it is much easier to set up than something like OMVPN. You know, obviously, there's still more that can be done to make it easier and uh, to make the stuff like the um, uh, management side and and dealing with dynamic address assignment and so on. But it is... uh, really handy to be able to stand up a VPN without as much of the hassle as something like OpenVPN.
0: Oh, yes. And we had people uh, from uh, earlier years even uh, in the feedback section ask exactly for that, for a kernel driver. So that's uh, coming.
1: Mm -hmm. That's there on OpenBSD and coming
0: on FreeBSD. No matter which operating system you're on, you should be able to do proper backups. And that's what Tarsnap is.
1: Tarsnap is secure, efficient, online backup uh, it's encrypted, but with your private keys that never leave your machine. Uh, that way, no one else can read the data once it's put up into the cloud. The source code for the client is available, so you can actually you're, you're encouraged not to trust TarSnap, but to actually verify it yourself, and you can you know make sure that the encryption is happening in the right way, and that it's happening with your keys, and that your keys are never being sent off to TarSnap and so on. Uh, and it has very clever deduplication, uh, rather than splitting on specific blocks it actually is able to find the patterns in your file and deduplicate it against what's already been backed up to avoid sending data you've already sent online again saving you bandwidth
0: there are multiple clients available for pretty much all the operating systems under the world well i think it's, under the it's
1: mostly the one client but it's super portable so yeah it works on bsd linux mac os uh and Cygwin. so you can get a native windows binary or you can use the windows subsystem for linux to run uh the linux one
0: yeah, so check out the Tarsnap website for more details, uh, pricing, and also the bug bounty if you want to participate in that, or just use the... Yeah, you know, if you're going to read the code anyway... <laughs> you might as well get a bit of money back if you find a typo or uh, something that's more uh, s- severe. Uh, but a lot of people have looked at it, I would say, and uh, haven't found anything too critical that would uh, expose users' data or something that's not uh, as it should be. Yep,
1: there's a... A history here somewhere. There it is. Uh, you know, uh, Ralph Cordry managed to collect 150 separate bounties. Although I think most of those were typos, and he was just the first. But uh, there's a long list of people who have uh, got hundreds of dollars for uh, various bugs that they've reported.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yep. And I'm uh, fairly sure that not all of them are the die-hard security researchers. So. Uh...
1: No, some of them are, you know, just finding a double free if the config file happens to have a line that's longer than this many characters uh, or, you
0: know, I found uh, a cosmetic error in the code. Yeah, but uh, Step is open for suggestions and corrections this way. And if you don't want to dive in too deep, then just use the software to make your daily uh, backups or even hourly backups, however uh, recent you want to have them. And that's, again, safely stored in the AWS cloud, and only you holding the key can get back the data that is making sense.
1: Yeah, and um, with the deduplication. yeah, there's no reason not to do backups very frequently.
0: All right, now it's time for the feedback and questions part of this episode. Uh, we get a lot of feedback, but... Nevertheless, we should not keep the flow of good input coming into our show uh, stopping. So uh, if you have anything for us, any hints, questions like the ones that are following or suggestions of any sort, then reach out to our email address, feedback at bsdnow.tv. The first one this week is Florian, I think that's a German name, so I'm pronouncing it in the German way, uh, about uh, Lua for Dollar Home. Well, that sounds interesting. Uh He writes, hi guys, still enjoying the show since the recommendation on BSD Talk. Oh wow, that's a long... What was that 2016? I
1: think, when I did the interview with Will.
0: Botten. Yeah, I was a listener still back then. <laughs> or
1: was it 2014? It was 2014 at VBSDCon. Mm. I remember doing it in one of the little side rooms and because we were sitting so still at the table just doing this interview the lights went out (laughs) and so then i'm trying to keep talking normally while will's waving his arms around like crazy trying to get the lights to turn back on make enough movement for the motion (laughs) lights to turn back on for 10 minutes Uh,
0: okay yeah it's it's been a long time i hope will is doing fine um so yeah um Great for sticking with us for so long. Um, then the mail continues. So with no need to answer them all on one show, some questions for you. The first, with Lua in the bootloader, will Lua end up in base? Lua also used uh, is also used for ZFS channel programs, isn't it? Yes, so Lua is currently
1: used in the bootloader for uh, a more accessible scripting language and is used in ZFS for channel programs. And to answer your question, yes, uh, Lua is in the base system of FreeBSD13 now as FLUA or FLUA, which is being used as a more generic scripting language that'll be just available to build stuff in FreeBSD. Part of the reason for calling it FLUA is that if you need... so the the bundled version of Lua in FreeBSD might be somewhat stripped down uh, and only have some features and so on. So if you actually need Lua, we want you to be able to install Lua from packages and get Lua with the command line Lua. But if you're happy to use the built-in you know, FreeBSD scripting language, which is FLUA, then yes, that'll be available, and more and more things are starting to use it. Um, You know, there's some talk about uh, using it to replace some RC scripts to make them better, or a bunch of other things. Uh, And yeah, there's work to improve the build process. For example, regenerating the syscall list in FreeBSD 13 is done with Lua instead of a shell script, because you can make much nicer code and deal with you know, quotes and escaping and so on much more cleanly. Mm. Uh, So yes, uh, Lua is going to be available in the base system. uh, It will be super useful for writing small scripts
0: where shell script might not quite be the right answer. Yeah. So I think this next question refers to the installer. How about an option to create a data set for every user's home? Having separate snapshots, quotas, and delegations would be pretty useful. So I looked at this before. I have a, there is a patch
1: for the add user command to make it do this. Although, you know, not every user gets added that way. And I don't know if you'd wanna to try to do it from the pw command, It gets a bit ickier there. The biggest problem I had is I ran down the rabbit hole of, well, maybe it should clean up uh, when you do rm user. Yes. The problem being that, so with ZFS, you can give it a path and it will figure out which data set contains that path. Yeah, at the moment. Which I was hoping to be able to use to say, you know, delete this user's home directory. But the problem is if they happen to not have a data set, so if some of your users do and some of your users don't or none of your users do, then if you say ZFS destroy pool nameslash slash usr slash home slash bcr mm. yeah i just kill my home directory well sorry if, if you do the pool name and everything it'll do the right thing but if you give it the path just user home bcr it will figure out what pool that's on for you which is useful right like uh you know some people might have their home directory on a different pool than their os or they might name their pool something other than zroot so it was it seemed really nice to be able to just say zfs destroy user home bcr except if that isn't a data set mm. that will destroy all of user home yeah because that is a data set by default that's not desired <laughs> and usually. that's not what you want <laughs> just because i'm trying to delete bcr's user doesn't mean i want to delete my home directory <laughs> so yeah then i felt like automatically destroying is hmm that's that's not great and then i never really got back to it but having an option to to create data set for each user when it gets created would be useful i think and i can I should just go revive my code from the add user command
0: and add that as a thing. How are the more ZFS focused uh, Sun distributions were doing it back then?
1: I don't know what the Sun ones do. I don't don't think they do a dataset per user, but they might.
0: Yeah, because maybe they have found something like a management layer or something that does just that of user management with ZFS. But yeah, I agree. Snapshots, quotas, and delegations are exactly that uh, very helpful thing for home directory management. So if someone maybe has a bit of time uh, to code this, uh, the final bits, like 5% that's missing, maybe 15%, um, then yeah, don't let us stop you. Um, okay, third question here. Somewhat related, do you know a tool for managing snapshots that purges empty ones, like uh, with the ones with no changes or the used equals zero kilobytes? Maybe even keeping some older ones around instead.
1: Not exactly. Um, part of that being that going and checking how big every snapshot is every five minutes can get expensive. But I see the the desire to have that. Part of it can be weird because the the used size is not necessarily the same as the written size. And the two of them being different things and snapshots grow in a different way. Um, basically, if a snapshot contains data that the previous snapshot did not, then that's written data. Mm-hmm. And used is only when a snapshot contains data that has since been deleted by in a later snapshot. So the used size does not necessarily imply that there's no data in the dataset. Right? So a used of zero means... There could be new data there's just not old data that this snapshot is keeping around
0: yeah be careful with that it's misleading
1: so then you basically are down to having to do like zfs destroy nv which means don't actually do it but tell me how big it was and i'll tell you how much space you'll get back by deleting that snapshot and then if the answer is zero sure you can delete that snapshot but you're not gaining anything by deleting that snapshot so why not just keep it mm. and not spend all your time looking for snapshots that you can delete that won't give you back any space
0: <laughs> yeah it's just management overhead
1: like in general uh zfs is happy to have a thousand snapshots per data set as long as you're not going into the tens of thousands you're probably not going to have a problem and in that case you know it doesn't seem to hurt to just keep them all
0: yeah ZFS can handle that. (laughs) It's all fine. So, yeah, uh, thanks for the feedback. And, uh, oh, the PS also, thanks for the answer you, uh, or how to from stable to release dozens of episodes ago. Worked like a charm. Yeah, that's good to know. And uh, thanks for your feedback. Then next we have Kevin with a FreeBSD source question. Ooh, I like this one already. Uh, Kevin writes, I'm not at code." I am not a code auditor. but this past few months I have been reading through the FreeBSD source code files, like libc in uh, files in user sources, user sources uh, libkern for example, user sources slash kern, and uh, machine architecture specific parts, uh, like i386, PowerPC, amd64. I also noticed that the bootloader was moved uh, from user sources boot to user source, and the folder getting renamed. Uh, stand, is it possible to get the info why the boot has moved?
1: Yep. Uh, I think the commit message might have had some detail. In general, it was mostly because uh, the sys subdirectory is supposed to be stuff that's the kernel, and it turns out that boot is not really related to the kernel. Not yet, yeah. So it got moved up. The stand means, it is short for standalone, it basically means that this code actually needs to be able to run without libc, and without a kernel available, right? they basically happened before those things. And so that's why I got moved around. I think it might have originally been in stand in like decades ago. Yeah. So Warner Losch, Thomas Soom, Kyle Evans, uh, myself, Ian Lepore, and a bunch of other people did a lot of work on the bootloader and trying to clean it up. In particular, there was a lot of code that was basically copy and pasted or, or duplicated from other places. And we tried to avoid that. In particular, there's a, a libstand, or lib standalone that is useful for things like the rescue binaries, and so only it basically provides a stripped-down version of libc without libc. You know, it can provide a memory allocator by just making a giant heap variable, and and uh, or a giant stack variable even, and then pretending to make a heap out of that. So to better clarify that it's not part of the kernel, and so that it would be included as part of build world instead of build kernel it got moved out of the sys directory. And since uh, it contains a bit more than just the boot code, it was named stand for standalone. And it's all the bits of the system that don't really depend on you having libc or a kernel or
0: anything like that. See, even I didn't know that. So I also learned something from answering these questions or letting it. Alan answered them.
1: Yeah, but uh, yeah, a lot of work happened. Like when I first started working on the support for Gelly in the bootloader, each of the bootloaders was completely separate and mostly contained copy and pasted code. Mm. For example, the function to read from the keyboard in GBD ZFS boot was a copy from netbsd from 15 years ago or something and had a bug that had been fixed in netbsd since and had been fixed in freebsd's libc but it never got fixed in the bootloaders version yeah. meaning that if you pressed a certain key sequence it didn't backspace didn't work properly anymore or something like that you could confuse it or there was a case where it didn't handle there was a continue like a an if with stuff tabbed in but there was a second line under it that was tabbed in that looked like it was part of the if, but because there were no braces, it wasn't, and so on. Ah, It was kind of like a go-to-fail type thing. Yeah, Uh, Little bugs like that that cause things not (laughs) to work right. Anyway, now the code's been cleaned up so that we use mostly the lib standalone and so on to provide all those. So we have one good implementation of many of those features and trying to share them more, especially now that we have both the legacy and the EFI versions of the boot code. Uh, we're just finishing up a project to uh, make those more common so that when you fix a bug in one, you, you fix it everywhere instead of turning out that, yeah, if somebody fixed that in EFI but didn't fix it in legacy and now we've run into this bug that we already fixed, we just didn't copy and paste the fix to a second place. It's like, well, if we include the files instead of copy and paste them, it would be better. Also, other evil, evil things that were being done, like including Dot C files directly. So normally in in C you have you know you hashtag include H files yeah. full of, of prototypes and so on, but yeah this was like GPT's uh, GPT boot which boots UFS would just include like these two C files that are the functions you need to read and write UFS.
0: <laughs> that sounds like spaghetti code. Okay.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh Well, it's slightly better than literally copying and pasting the code from those files into the other files and right. and then having these problems but yeah there were some shenanigans okay uh but you know in the end the the code uh not gpt boot necessarily but the code to be able to read the loader or the kernel from ufs has to fit in seven and a half kilobytes of assembly mm, yeah. or, or binary. That doesn't code. give
0: you much space.
1: When, when you compile the C down, it has to be less than seven and a half kilobytes. So
0: Yeah, that's the extra challenge there.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> making sure that remained the case was a bit of fun.
0: Okay. Yeah, hopefully uh, that answers your question, Kevin, and maybe you find some other stuff that's interesting or maybe a bug uh, while code spelunking and you never know what, uh, where it leads you and what kind of things you might discover. And uh, the next is Tom with, uh, oh, yes, a good feedback for the Home Labs uh, thing. Uh, he writes Hello, BSD Now team. Thank you in all caps. I'm not shouting on the show because ears. Um, so, yeah, thank you for continuing the podcast and all the work you put in. Uh, it is much appreciated. Thank you. Watching Alan's panel on home labs was informative. While setting up a new lab server, I was browsing a lot of documentation and was introduced to the concept UCL, Universal Config Language. Uh, although I have used it many times without knowing, Googling UCL doesn't give that many new sources, but I understand Alan and Michael W. Lucas are proponents, uh, if only those two. If there, uh, or is there a general consensus to make UCL the standard FreeBSD config language and what is its status?
1: Um, so the status is it's pretty good like uh, libucl itself is is there and is used in a bunch of things both within and without freebsd you know it was originally written i think for rspamd which is uh, a commercial product from a freebsd developer yeah there's a general drive to use it uh, more and more there have been i've done a couple projects to try to switch uh, various config files to it i have most of the work done for converting login.conf from its evil, terrible format it uses now into UCL. And I wrote that in such a way that it reads login.conf. If the first line doesn't say, this is a FreeBSD UCL config file, then it processes it the old way. So it's backwards compatible. Uh, so basically I made the the parsing code start with, if, if it's UCL, call this function, and if it's not, call the old function. And that way new installs automatically use UCL But people who upgrade in place uh, can continue using their old config files until they decide to convert or whatever, and so on. Uh, And I have might-be-five-year-old now patch for new syslog to change its config file format to that because I wanted to be able to more easily say, hey, I'm using ZFS, don't compress any of my log files. Mm. And currently that would require editing every line of new syslog.conf and so on instead of being able to just say, you know, to all of these as an overlay apply this change or the other thing is you know currently new syslog.conf actually kind of breaks the way we normally do config files in freebsd which is you know there's etc defaults whatever.conf and then you provide your overrides in another file but some of these files that are kind of older than that concept even mean that sometimes we add a new log file to new syslog.conf and you have to merge it in with all your local changes and it gets messy whereas and then I think most of the desire for that went to oh, well, was satisfied when they added include support for new syslog so that you could include, you know, user local etc slash, so that, you know, the nginx package could automatically add a config to ro- rotate the nginx.conf and things like that. But I would still like to see it switch to UCL, but again, probably going to have to do something where we can uh, support the old format which in general you can apply the same concept, but when you get into the include stuff, it gets more complicated. Uh, you know, if the nginx package still ships a a config file in the old format, but you're using the new format, they're not really meant to be mixed, but I suppose it might be doable still. Mostly we're looking for people to show up and help convert tools in the base system to use UCL. Yeah. When I originally looked at it, uh, I, I looked through uh, all the tools that have weird config files in FreeBSD. And decided that crontab was one of the ones where I couldn't come up with a better format. And then you know, I didn't want to replace it. But then the person who wrote the crontab that's in FreeBSD, Paul Vixie, is like, no, 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 you definitely, please replace that config file format. I'm like, I, I can't. It's like, I wrote the UCL version of the config file format. And it, it's basically exactly the same thing, except for it's like minute equals, hour equals, instead of, you know, assuming what the columns are. Uh, has the slight advantage of you don't have to you know accidentally put four stars or or six stars instead of five or whatever but you know it didn't seem like there was that much of a win for the cost of people changing the format but looking for volunteers to help convert tools turns out to be a good way to learn the c programming language is making relatively small changes to existing programs but also a way to learn that 20 year old code is interesting
0: <laughs> <in> various ways, <laughs> but yeah, if you want to uh, UCLify uh, more utilities, then definitely try your uh, your best on these, and uh, yeah, send us a patch or to the project more like, and uh, then who knows, people might use your configuration language then.
1: Yeah, and even just also looking for people to help write some documentation or best practices on how to design the config files.
0: Mm-hmm. Even better, yeah.
1: Like, how, how, if, if we're going to convert the config files, we want to pick a format that we're going to have to live with for a while. <laughs> and so picking some common things, like one of the things I kind of wanted to see was a survey of a bunch of the different types of the config files and how we can make something that's generic enough so that each of these UCL files looks similar, even though the tools are doing different things. Hmm. Like I kind of got down a rabbit hole when I was trying to, do a UCL config file for Beehive, where it was like, oh, it's just gonna have the defaults. And then you could just, I was trying to make UCL do too much of the magic for you, I think. But then we get to the point of like, well, we need to be able to describe the entire PCI bus.
0: Uh, uh, like, uh, mm, well. that could be fun. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: then it gets complicated. But uh, start with a small utility yep. that has a config file or format of sorts, and then move your way up. Exactly. Okay, then uh, thanks to the people who wrote in this week or that we could help out in this episode. Uh, definitely reach out, or if you are more of the uh, IRC chatty type, then you can also uh, chat with other people about the show on uh, irc.geekshed.net on the channel BSD Now. Thanks for watching and listening and keeping us updated with the latest news on the BSD side that you found and we haven't covered yet.